0: Well, today uh, we do return to our study of 2 uh, Thessalonians, which, as we have seen, evolves around three issues that were disturbing uh, the peace of the church at Thessalonica. Uh, we already examined in past messages uh, the issue in chapter 1. And what was that issue? The issue of persecution. And affliction. And how did Paul address the issue of pain and suffering? Not by promising deliverance in this life, but by pointing us to the promise of Christ's return. Paul thanks God in chapter one for how God uses suffering to grow a believer's faith, hope, love in Jesus Christ and to make us worthy of God's coming kingdom. Paul emphasizes that when Christ returns, believers will experience everlasting pleasure, while unbelievers, and especially our persecutors, will be banished from Christ's presence to suffer everlasting punishment. Paul closes chapter 1 by showing how through prayer we can appropriate God's grace as we travel the road of suffering that leads to our future glory in Christ. But persecution was not the only issue that was disturbing the peace of the church. As we move today into chapter 2, the issue becomes false teaching concerning the order of future events, end time events. So, uh, take your Bibles, open them to the book of Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, and let's look at the first two verses. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ in what? Our gathering together to Him, His coming and the gathering of the church to Him, the rapture, we often call it, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, it's very important to remember that, as we move into this chapter, the Thessalonians had already received a good amount of teaching about the end times. Uh, Paul did this while he was with them in Thessalonica, and of course, this is one of his primary emphasis in his first letter to him and remember, we went through First Thessalonians verse by verse last summer. Uh, when Paul wrote first Thessalonians, you may remember. The, the believers were very uh, concerned or, or troubled that Christ coming uh, to deliver His church out of this world uh, had not come soon enough because some of their loved ones, some of their friends had died, and, and they were very concerned that therefore they would, they would miss this great event. And, of course, Paul wrote the very latter part of 1 Thessalonians 4 to address that concern. And a little bit later in the message, we will remind ourselves of that truth. Now, here in 2 Thessalonians, their problem is just the opposite, that the rapture had come too soon. False teachers were saying that they had missed the rapture and that they were in the day of the Lord, the time of God's judgment on a sinful world. Uh, which Paul had already taught them about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And to make matters worse, the false teachers circulated a forged document as if it had been written by Paul himself indicating that Paul agreed with the false teachers that, of course, would have contradicted his previous teaching to the church at Thessalonica. And so, as you can imagine, uh, this put the church in a state of just tremendous uh, confusion and anxiety. And so, Paul uses chapter 2 to correct the error and to restore the Thessalonians' joy and comfort in the coming of Christ for his church. Now, you'll notice uh, in your notes, and I trust you picked up a copy of the notes this morning, that I'm going to begin an introduction and and some background information for 2 Thessalonians by sharing a survey of future events, which will take me actually uh, two weeks to cover, uh, this Sunday and next. Now, why did I choose not just to immediately dive into uh, chapter 2? Well, I know there are some of you here that are well versed uh, in end times teaching, but then there are those of you that are not. Uh, Paul's teaching, again, in chapter 2 was done inside of a larger context of a group of folks that had already been uh, taught very well about the end times. Look at uh, verse five. Look at verse five in Second Thessalonians chapter two. He said, "Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things?" So again, Paul had already given these believers a good amount of teaching about the end times. Therefore, I thought a survey of future events would provide a very good understanding for better understanding Second Thessalonians chapter 2, because the entire chapter deals with end-time events, and especially uh, the Antichrist, and uh, some of the issues evolved around him. Now, before we get to the survey, let me emphasize a very important point, and I hope I have everyone's undivided attention right here. The primary purpose in studying end-time events should not be to build a prophetic calendar but to build Christ-like character. Unlike much contemporary teaching today on the end times, which tends to be very sensational, teaching on the end times in the New Testament was always pastoral. And what I mean by that, teaching always came, whether it was from Paul, whether it was from Peter, or whether it was at John, to encourage, to comfort to motivate believers in their life struggles to remain faithful to Christ. Therefore, I pray that our study uh, of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and especially as we use this survey the next couple of weeks, that it will grow our faith. It will grow our love and and our hope. It will motivate us to remain faithful to Christ as we eagerly await His return. So, uh, let's begin our survey of future events with the uh, time that we are presently in, and that is what we can call the church age. That's the first thing there on your survey, the church age. That's number one. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, most of you are very familiar with this verse. Jesus said, I will build my what? Church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. Notice. Notice. Before Jesus left the earth, he promised he would build his church, which up to that point did not exist. Matter of fact, Paul called the church a mystery in Ephesians and Colossians because it was not revealed in the Old Testament. God had been working through the nation of Israel as a witness for him in the world. But due to their rejection of Christ, God raised up the church to be the standard bearer of his grace and glory to the world. The church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, which is recorded in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came to dwell within the hearts Of every individual that called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, without distinction between Jew and Gentile. And Jesus promised not even the forces of hell would be able to overpower God's plan for the church. And what is God's plan for the church? Well, first, the church is the temple of Christ, the temple of Christ. That verse there in your sermon notes, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 reads, Do you not know that you... And in this context, he's speaking to the church family in Corinth. Not to the individual, but to the church family. He says, Don't you know that there's a church that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Uh, a great cross-reference is Ephesians chapter 2 verses 21 and 22. And I love the way it reads from the Phillips version. It says, In him, in Christ, each separate piece of the building. And what is each separate piece of the building? That's you. That's the various members of the church. It says, And properly fitting into its neighbor, grows together into a temple consecrated to God. You are all part of this building In which God Himself lives by His Spirit. The church is God's people united to be a holy temple. We exist to house the very presence of God. And this is why we are to be holy as God is holy. Getting some kind of. if I have to go to another mic I will this is why we are to be holy as God is holy the church exists to be a home for God in the midst of a sinful world to extend his presence to express his character you want me to go to a different mic let me let me just go to a handheld mic that'll be fine i apologize living in the Edgewood Baptist family? Have you given God's Spirit unrestricted access to every compartment of your heart so that He can have His way and His will in every area of your life? Or have you reserved some little closet, some little pet sin for yourself? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 19 and 20, says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. See, probably some of us need to clean house today by repenting of the sin that we've brought into God's home, God's house. And that house clean, cleansing should not only focus on our conduct, but it should also focus on our attitudes, our motives, and our thought life. Not only is the church the temple of Christ, it's also the bride of Christ. Uh, Revelation 21, 9 talks about the bride who is the wife of the Lamb. We discover in Ephesians 5 uh, that the relationship between Christ and the church provides what? A pattern for the relationship between husband and wife, Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her to secure for himself a bride. And how are we to respond to such love? By loving praising and worshiping Him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, by being submissive to Him in all things as we give Him our undivided attention, our undying affection, and our uncompromising allegiance. Did you know that Jesus said there are actually many who worship Him in vain? And that means their worship is empty. Their worship is worthless. Their worship is useless. And how do you worship Jesus in vain? Well, Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me. See, we worship Him in vain when there is no passion to our worship. You know, the word worship itself in the New Testament is the word proskuneo, which means to kiss towards. It's a word expressing not only submission, but the affection of our heart, being surrendered to Him, to follow Him. You know, I'll give you probably one of the greatest examples in all of the New Testament of true, authentic worship. And this is how we should come to worship to corporate worship this is how we should come to our private time or devotion this is how we should live life as a act of worship to honor him Uh, Jesus had been teaching in a city one day and there was a woman the Bible tells us a sinful woman an immoral woman a whore a harlot and as she heard his message she realized this is not an ordinary man. And she came to believe that this is the very Son of God, the promised Messiah. And as Jesus extended the gift of forgiveness, she placed her faith in Jesus and received that gift and turned from her sin to follow him now as her Lord. Well, she discovered after that encounter with Jesus... That, that night he had remained in her hometown and that he was having dinner with a Pharisee by the name of Simon. And she was so overcome by her love for Christ, by the gift of forgiveness that she had received, she knew somehow she had to get into that dinner party to express her appreciation, to express her adoration. And so she took the most valuable possession that she had, an alabaster vial of costly perfume. Uh, the Scripture tells us it would, have ta- it, would take a- it would have taken a laborer an entire year, working 365 days out of the year, saving every penny of his wages to have collected enough money to have bought a possession like this. She comes into the dinner party. Now, you have to use your imagination. Remember when they ate, they laid on their side. They reclined at table. So, Jesus would have been propped on one shoulder with his other hand free to eat, with his legs tucked behind him. The Scripture says when the woman came into his presence, she just became overwhelmed, and she began to weep just uncontrollably weep just out of her deep love for him and suddenly and i'm sure initially she was probably embarrassed when she noticed that her tears were actually falling on the dust stained feet of her savior and lord and then she did something that was not Socially, socially accepted in that day. The women in public did not typically let their hair down, put up, or they had it covered. But she took her hair, put it down, and then with her hair and her tears, she washed the feet of Jesus. And then she took that alabaster vial of perfume. The scripture says she broke it and she poured every drop on Jesus. to express the love that she had in her heart for him. And then don't miss this. The scripture tells us she then buried herself at Jesus' feet. And the Bible says the entire time she was in his presence, she never ceased kissing his feet. Just kept kissing his feet over and over and over again. Now this Pharisee by the name of Simon, he's watching this. He knows the reputation of this woman. This is his hometown. He knows that this woman has been a harlot. She's been a whore. And he doesn't say it out loud, but the Bible says he thinks to himself, if this Jesus really were a man sent from God, if he really were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. And he would not let a woman like this touch him he wouldn't let a woman like this within shouting distance of him and he was totally repulsed by the scene Jesus knowing the thoughts knowing the hearts of all men knowing exactly what Simon was thinking he turns to Simon and using the woman buried at his feet kissing his feet as his sermon illustration he says Simon First, I want to ask you a question. Simon, there were two men and they owed the same moneylender a debt, but one a very large debt, one a very small debt. Let's say in our vernacular, one owed $5, the other man owed $250,000, where Simon, the moneylender, he forgave both men their debts, just wiped the slate clean, canceled the debt out. Simon, here's my question. Which one of those men would love the most? Simon didn't have to think long. And he probably said, probably in a little arrogant fashion, well, I assume the one forgiven most would love the most. Jesus says, you've answered well. And then he said, Simon, look at her. Look at this woman, Simon. I came into your home, invited by you. And you didn't even have the common courtesy to provide water for me to wash my feet, which was just a common courtesy, just common etiquette in that day. But Simon, look at her. Look at this woman. With her tears of appreciation, with her tears of adoration, she's washed my feet as I have, what, washed her sins away. Simon, look at her. Look at this woman, Simon. This woman that repulses you, look at her. I came into your home. Did you have the common courtesy to have me anointed prior to the meal? Again, just a common etiquette in that day? No. But Simon, look at her. She brought her most valuable possession broke it, poured every drop on me to demonstrate that she had counted all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing me, that now I am her greatest love, her greatest treasure, her greatest passion. Simon, look at her. Look at this woman, Simon. I came into your home. Did you greet me with the customary Oriental greeting kiss? No, but look at her, still buried in my feet. She's never ceased kissing me. Simon, Simon, look, look at her. Do you see her, Simon? I tell you something, Simon. The one who's forgiven much loves much. And then in one of the most Tender scenes in the Savior's ministry. He now focuses on the woman. Buried at his feet, kissing his feet. He takes his hand that's soon to be nailed on Calvary's cross. For her sins, for your sins, the sins of humanity. Places his hand underneath her chin and lifts her face till their eyes met. Can you even begin to imagine that look of love. And he says, Woman, thy faith has saved you. Your sins have been given, forgiven. Go in peace. Folks, that's what it means to be the bride of Christ. This is his house, this is his temple. We come to worship Him. And we come to worship Him with passion. And what we discover in this story is that as you focus on who Jesus is, as you focus on what Jesus did for you, it's that which ignites that passion. And I'm not talking about blind emotion, but I'm talking about passion that's rooted in truth the truth about who he is, what he did, a passion that results in a radical commitment to Jesus Christ and a desire to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. See, we so often come to church and the question is, what am I going to get? out of this today well the real issue is what have you given to Jesus have you kissed him have you loved him for loving you not only the temple of Christ not only the bride of Christ but the church is also the body of Christ look at uh, Romans 12 5 uh, let me read it for you Uh, you have the reference where you can Check this out later, it says, so we, talking about us, right here, who are many, are one body, and individual members, one of another, belonging to one another. You know, we often talk about Christianity being about believing certain truth, and that's very, very true. Christianity is about truth, and it's rooted in truth about who Jesus is, what he did. It's rooted in the truth of Scripture. But Christianity is also about belonging, belonging to a family that loves one another, that fellowships, that serves together. See, the body of Christ is a diverse body made up of many different members. With different functions, but every person valuable, every person necessary if the body is to function as God intended. This is why the church is not a place to be a spectator, but it is a place to be a participant as you find your place of ministry. As we each submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the body, and follow his instructions. We experience a beautiful, functioning unity to walk as Jesus walked, to love one another, and to what? Serve others. But, of course, what does this demand on our part? It demands a servant's attitude. The one that's spoken of in Philippians 2, where it says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. "...but with humility of mind, regard others more important than yourself." Do not look to your interest, but look to the interest of others. Have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to selfishly cling on to. But he emptied himself of everything but love, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant. And being made in the fashion of man and being in the likeness of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross." That is what it means to be the body of Christ. We are to express the mind of Jesus Christ that regards others better than yourself. We are to express the eyes of Christ. It does not focus on our needs and interests, but the needs and interests of others. We're to express the arms of Christ where we don't cling on to those things we want, that we cherish most, but we let those things go. We empty ourselves so that we can embrace others, so that we can invest and love others. And we're to express that heart of Christ that knows no limits. It was willing to go to the cross to secure our, our salvation. Bottom line, you cannot follow Christ without denying self and embracing the cross to love others as he loved us. And let me just say right here at this point, I want to commend the Edgewood family. In many ways... You have been a beautiful example of this truth. This is a very loving body. This is a very serving body. There's not a week that goes by where I am literally not blown away. I'm not not touched emotionally when I hear about some member or members of the church reaching out to other folks in need. But, of course, as the Scripture often says, we're to, what, excel even more. So I do commend you. I do commend you for the love and the service that you have shown. And let's continue to show that love for one another and that service to others. The church is the temple of Christ, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, but also, finally, what? The ambassador of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. In other words, representatives of Christ in this world. God making his appeal through us. In other words, how does God speak to a lost world? Through us, through his people, through the church. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you remember in Acts 1, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, after his death, burial, and resurrection? Do you remember where the focus of the disciples was? They were asking all these questions about end-time events. They wanted to get their prophetic calendar down right. And Jesus says to them, listen guys, it's not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. In other words, he says, don't get so concerned about what's going to happen in the future. You need to focus on what I've called you to do today. And the church is to be a bold witness for Jesus Christ. You know, this is a a true story uh, out of the life of uh, Alexander the Great. You know, Alexander the Great was uh, one of the greatest uh, military soldiers, strategists that's ever lived on planet Earth and he literally could not find enough lands uh, to conquer. And, uh, and uh, he ruled his troops well, and he demanded much from them. And on this particular occasion, their armies were advancing, and as was his habit, he would often hold court uh, for soldiers that were committed of various crimes. And they said the, 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 the thing that Alexander hated the most, and he would not tolerate, was a soldier being a coward in battle, shrinking back in fear in battle, retreating. As he was holding court, they brought this young teenage boy, and they said when he was brought before Alexander that you could see Alexander's expression. He was just struck by the features of this young lad. Looked very similar, actually, to Alexander himself. Just a a striking figure. And Alexander asked, what is his crime? And they said, he retreated in the face of the enemy and we found him hiding in a cave. They said with that, Alexander just turned beet red in rage. And he, and he got up of the chair he was sitting in, and he got right in front of this young boy. And he said, son, what is your name? And the boy said, Alexander. He said, what did you say your name is? Alexander, sure. What did you say your name is? Alexander, sir. And then Alexander looked at him and he said, Son, you either change your conduct or you change your name. What is your name? Oh, Christian. <coughs> what did you say your name is? Christian. Your name is what? Christian. You know what that name means? You know what Christian means? What? Follower of Christ. Christ said, follow me and I will make you a what? Fisher of men. Can we claim to follow Christ if we are not fishing for men? if this is not a key priority and goal and focus in our individual lives, in our families, and in our church. This is why something like My Hope America is such a wonderful opportunity for everyone to become involved and invested in bringing your friends and your family and your coworkers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, beloved, as we move to the next point, You do not measure the success of the church by counting noses and nickels. There's only one pertinent question for any local church or even the church universal— Are we being faithful to what God called us to be? Are we being the temple of God, providing a fit, holy habitation for God? Are we being the bride of Christ to worship, praise, and love Him as He ought to be praised and worshipped? Are we the body of Christ, walking as He walked, loving one another, serving our community, and are we being an ambassador for Christ, a faithful representative and witness Extending his presence again, expressing his character, expounding his truth. Now, what will be the next event? When will the church age come to an end on this earth? That's the next event on your survey, the rapture of the church. Turn to First Thessalonians 4. We'll have to stop with this right here. And we'll pick up next week. First Thessalonians 4. And by the way, I I do not apologize for spending the time that I did on defining the church. Because again, uh, I want my focus to be where Christ was. Uh, Let's not get so caught up on the end time events that we don't miss what he's called us to be now. And neglect that. The rapture of the church. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, Verses 13 and 18. Remember, I told you the reason Paul wrote this, they were very concerned about believers who had already died. And they were wondering, will they miss this event? And he writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. In other words, those who have died. That you have not that you do not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise, what? First then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. So what do we see? Dead believers will be raised first, and then what? Living believers will be caught up together with them. Look at the third event. Let me just touch on this. And that's the judgment seat of Christ. Well, you need to put the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ always uh, together. And look at these verses. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at 9 and 10. It says, Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent. In other words, he's talking about whether we're on, in, on earth uh, absent from the Lord or at home with the Lord, he said this are, to please Him, to be pleasing to Him. Why? Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In other words, as we're, as we're seeing, and as you see there on your notes, the judgment seat of Christ is designed for believers only. This is not for unbelievers, it's for believers. And it does not deal with salvation, it deals with what? Rewards. Your salvation is secure in Christ, but it will determine your eternal reward. Look at verse 11. For no uh, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon the foundation talking about your conversion, your salvation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day talking about the judgment seat of Christ will show it because it will be revealed with fire for the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon, if it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer a loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And then let me just give you one other cross-reference as we close. And this is a good place to close as we move into the invitation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Listen very carefully. And now, little children... In other words, in light of that, in light of the fact that you know the rapture is coming, in light of the fact that you know that one day you will stand face to face with Jesus Christ as a believer, and He's going to ask you, What's your name? He's going to determine, Did you live up to your calling as we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Did you live out God's works? He says, Knowing that, that there will be an accounting, He says, And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. And that should be our prayer, that when that day comes, we can approach that day with confidence. And there won't be a day of shame when we shrink away as we realize all the opportunities that we missed. As we realize we threw our life away on trivial pursuits. And our lives never really impacted others for the glory of God. So as we move into the invitation... The question is this. We're each going to stand in front of Jesus. We're each going to give an account. And so, are you being that holy temple for God? Are you being a home for Jesus where He can dwell comfortably with you? Or have you brought things into His home that makes Him very uncomfortable? Realize, if you're a believer, wherever you go, you take Him with you. Whatever you see, he sees with you. Whatever you hear, he hears with you. Whatever you read, he reads with you. You're his home. And you're dragging him into that mess. And so, do you need to clean clean house? We're going to have to give an accounting on were we a pure, faithful bride of Christ? Did we stay spiritually faithful? Or did we fall into spiritual adultery? Did we truly value him above and beyond all other things? And we loved him as he ought to be loved. Did we worship? Did we praise him? Have we been the body of Christ? Not selfish, but looking to others, to give ourselves to others in ministry and service. And have we been that ambassador of Christ, to be a witness for Christ? Again, to extend his presence, express his character, to expound his truth, share his truth with others. So, this should be a time of great reflection right now. A time of taking spiritual inventory right now. A time of humility to acknowledge where we have failed. To make that surrender of Christ. Not so much out of guilt, but when you see who He is, what He did for you. Where you'll come to Him like the woman with the alabaster vial of perfume. She didn't come out of guilt. She didn't come out of obligation. She didn't come out of duty. She came out of delight because she saw Him. He had forgiven her. What else could she do but love and worship and honor Him? Father, minister to our hearts. Um, Give us grace now uh, to be faithful. Lord, we are Your house. We are Your temple. And Lord, I mindful of those occasions when Jesus walked in the city of Jerusalem, went right into the temple, and He cleansed the temple, and He said, this is my Father's house. And so, Father, I'm asking You for the honor and glory of Your Son that You would cleanse our temples today, cleanse our sanctuaries, that we would provide a fit habitation for the Spirit of God. And Lord, open our eyes to see Jesus open our eyes to see Him, that we would come again not out of guilt but out of just delight. And if if there is regret, just the regret that we have taken advantage of His love, that we have failed to respond and reciprocate to His love, and today that's going to change as we want to just give our lives to love Him back for loving us first. And then as you do that work, that we would be that loving, ministering body of Christ that would know spiritual health to walk as Jesus walked. And that we would also do that to seek and save the lost, to be a faithful ambassador for you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.